be reading from Genesis chapter 2 this morning. Genesis chapter 2, we'll read the chapter in its entirety. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Hedekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife and we're not ashamed. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. I'd like to begin this morning with a quote from Reformed Baptist Pastor D. Scott Meadows. This is actually uh, from an endorsement that he wrote for a book that I will be quoting from later in the sermon uh, called Getting the Garden Right by another Reformed Baptist pastor by the name of Richard Barcelos. But here's what Scott Meadows said. He said, God is blessing his creation toward a redemptive end, which is indeed better than the beginning. The seeds of his purpose were all sown in Eden. The light of all scripture helps us see them now. 
They bud, flourish, and flower in the promised seed, even our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the abundant fruition of God's righteousness, gracious presence, and Sabbath rest. So this morning, as we continue our series through this book of beginnings that we call Genesis, we have to deal with several topics that arise here in chapter 2, and they are big topics. And I can't do justice to any of them in one sermon, let alone all three of them in one sermon. There are three major topics here. Uh, Each of these could be an entire sermon series in its own right. Of course, these topics are the Sabbath, the covenant of works, and the covenant of marriage. So these are big theological topics to deal with, and I cannot possibly say everything there is to say about any of them this morning. But what I hope to do is to show you the importance of each one of these, to show you some broad biblical guidelines uh, as you continue to meditate upon these three subjects, to study them further on your own. And I want to demonstrate to you how, just as the six days of creation in chapter 1 each pointed us towards some aspect of Christ's work, that likewise these three topics in chapter 2 also point us towards Christ. And I want to show you the logical progression from one to the other. These things are not just randomly thrown into chapter 2. The Holy Spirit inspired the writing of this text, and so it logically progresses from the Sabbath to the covenant of works to the covenant of marriage, and all three of those are working together to make a bigger point concerning Christ and glory. So as we begin chapter 2, you'll notice there's a continuation from Chapter 1. In chapter 1, we had a summary of the creative activity of each day. And so chapter 2 begins with the summary of day 7. And uh, we'll notice that the repeated phrases that we saw in chapter 1 on each of the days are are largely absent here. Uh, But I want you to see that this is a continuation uh, of chapter 1, right? The chapter uh, divisions were added much later. Uh, So Uh, We could have just read uh, until about verse 3 of chapter 2 here, and that would have been the first week. Uh, But if we begin in chapter 1 and verse 31, it says, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Then verse 1 of chapter 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. So, The creative work, the work of making and shaping everything that exists, had ended at the end of the sixth day. Then in verse 2, we get the summary of day 7. On the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. So the work is finished, and God rests from it. So first, just to be clear, the work that is spoken of here that is been brought to completion is that work of creating all things that are not God. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, God brings into being everything that exists and then forms those and shapes them 
into the world and the cosmos and living creatures and man. And we saw in chapter 1 in the six days of creation, uh, but we're given more detail here in chapter 2 concerning day 6. So we had a summary of day 6 back in chapter 1. Here in chapter 2, we're going to be given more detail, but it continued and gave us the summary of day 7. And we see that God not only created the animals on day 6, but he also created man. And we'll deal with the specifics of that in a few minutes. But notice what else he did on day 6 that it tells us about here in chapter 2. If we look down at verses 8 and 9, it says, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God plants a garden. He makes this special place on the earth for the man to dwell, and more importantly, for the man to meet with God. That, that's important, and we'll come back to that in a few moments. But God does all of this in the space of six days, and then on the seventh, that work being completed, he rests. So he told us in verse 2, and on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now we've seen blessing before. We saw blessing on day three, on day five, and on day six. On day five, God blessed the fish and the birds so that they would be fruitful and multiply. On day six, God blessed humanity so that they would be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the rest of creation. And if you'll remember, I said last time that God's blessing of these things was not him merely hoping or wishing them well, right? God didn't just wish the birds luck in reproducing. When he blessed them, he was speaking his word over them such that it came to fulfillment. The birds are fruitful and multiplied because God blessed them to be so. So the preceding examples of blessing on days five and six have to do with God's word being spoken to bring about a desired result. So when God blesses day seven to sanctify it, to set it apart as holy, as distinct from the other six days, dedicated to himself, when God does that, it was so. The Sabbath day was holy. It wasn't God's wish that it would be holy. It was made holy by God because he blessed it. So day seven is radically different than the other six days. It's different in two ways. First, God rested on day seven, not doing any more work of creating and making. Second, he blessed it to make it a holy day dedicated to this use of resting. So we have to ask ourselves, well, what, what does it mean that God rested on the seventh day? Well, one thing we know that it can't mean is that God was worn out and tired. He's the Almighty. The Almighty does not get tired. But it does mean that he ceased from the work of creating and making. Genesis 2, 3 says, Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because 
in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So he rested from the work of creating and making. That's what the word means. It means to come to an end or to put a stop to something. The Hebrew word here is sabbat, from which we get our word sabbath. Now, like I said, I can't say everything there is to say about the sabbath in one sermon, but I would like to make a few observations here and then we'll continue on to the other themes, but we're going to keep coming back to this idea of the Sabbath because it is central to chapter 2. First, the word means to stop doing something, to cease from your labor. The next time we see the word show up in Scripture might surprise you. It's in Genesis chapter 8, God's covenant with creation after the flood that we often call the Noahic covenant. There God promises that he will not destroy the world again as he did in the flood. And so he speaks these words of covenantal blessing and promise over the world. And he says this, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. There's our word, sabbat. It's the promise that as long as the earth remains... The seasons, the days, and the nights will continue. They won't come to an end. So that's what the word means. The next time we see this word is in Exodus, but not yet in the Ten Commandments. Rather, it's in Exodus 5. Here, Moses entreats Pharaoh to let the people of Israel travel three days' journey into the wilderness in order to worship and make sacrifices to God. In Exodus 5, verses 4 and 5, Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are many, and now you make them rest from their labor. So there's our word. It means to stop doing something, to cease their labor. There's one more use of the word in Exodus 12 where God commands the Israelites to remove all the leaven from their homes. And the word remove there is the same Hebrew word sabbat. They are to put an end to leaven in their homes. After that, then the next use of the word is in Exodus chapter 20 where we have the Ten Commandments. My point is the word means to cease, to stop, to put an end to something. God stopped his work of creating. He rested from it. Second, we see here that the Sabbath day is what John Murray referred to as a creation ordinance, or what C.S. Lewis might call the deep magic. In other words, the Sabbath is part of the moral law written on the hearts of men. Long before it was ever written on tablets of stone on Mount Sinai, Now, this is important because we need to see that this is woven into the very fabric of creation, into the very fabric of our being. The Sabbath was not arbitrarily imposed on Israel at Mount Sinai in the giving of the Ten Commandments. It had existed before then, written on our hearts in the same way thou shalt not kill was written on our hearts. The Sabbath, likewise, was written into creation from the very beginning. Now let me make another observation that is tied to that. As I said earlier, God didn't need to rest. So why did he? 
In fact, he didn't need to take six days. He could have done it in an instant. He's the Almighty. Why did he take six days to create? I think he did it because he was creating more than just a a beautiful picture. He knew what he was doing. He was creating something in his own likeness, a man, but he, he wove into creation a pattern for us to follow. If we are made in the image of God, then we are to act like our creator. He worked for six days and rested on the seventh. So what does it mean then, specifically, that man has been made in the image of God? Whatever it is, it distinguishes mankind from the rest of the creatures. It doesn't say that any of the other animals were made in God's image, only man. In our text this morning, we see in verse 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living being. God did something special in the creation of man. Man has a spirit or soul that the other animals don't have. We are made in God's image in that we are spiritual beings. We know that there is more to our lives than merely this present physical reality. Even the world knows this. They call it the afterlife. Every pagan religion that has ever existed has had some comprehension, some understanding of the afterlife. Even modern-day secular people who would call themselves atheists are still spiritual. They still have some view of a spiritual reality, many of them. We call it glory or eternity, everlasting life. We know that we have something to look forward to after this present life. Now we have physical bodies that God has put us in and they require rest. And so God, having made us in his image, set a pattern for us to follow. And so the Sabbath is part of that pattern. Six days of labor followed by one day of rest, intentionally put into creation from the very beginning for our good. Christ says in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Man was created on day six, the Sabbath on day seven. The Sabbath was made for our benefit as one day in seven to rest from our labors. Made in the image of God, we are to follow his example, work for six days, rest for one. Now, we're going to come back to this shortly, but just remember, the Sabbath was made for our benefit as a day of rest, and it has larger implications because we are spiritual creatures made in the image of God. But let's move on to the covenant of works with Adam. If we are to rest on the Sabbath from our works, then what are those works that we are to rest from? Well, God rested from his work of creating and making, and then God gave man work to do. This is commonly called the covenant of works. Our confession uses that language in chapter 19, paragraph 6, and we find this described for us in the text in verses 15 through 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So here we have God putting man in the garden. He's made this garden. He puts the man in it. And then he gives the man the job of caring for the garden. Tend and keep it. Cultivate the garden. We saw last week in chapter 1 what we called at that time the creation mandate in verse 28. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates, he makes and shapes everything. He plants a garden. He puts the man in the garden. He tells the man, your job is to cultivate the garden, to have offspring, and to subdue the rest of the earth. That is, expand the borders of the garden until it fills the whole world, until the entire world has been shaped and cultivated into this larger garden and fill it, populate it with your offspring who will be worshipers of God. And of course, as part of the covenant, he is given a law, both positive and negative. The negative part of the law is do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's a curse attached to it. If you break this law, you will die. The positive law is the command to cultivate the garden, to keep it, expand it, to fill the earth and populate it with worshipers. This is the basic form of a covenant that we see throughout the rest of the scriptures, positive and negative law, curses, violating the covenant. The implication here is, is that there is a blessing attached to obedience, that if Adam and his offspring had kept the covenant there would have been some blessing upon the completion of the work. This is where the covenant of works is tied to the Sabbath. When God had finished his work, he rested from that work. Now, what what did that mean? I asked earlier, what does it mean that God rested? Well, listen to the words of the Psalms. Psalm 132, verses 7 and 8. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his, holy, for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Psalm 78, verse 69, And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which he has established forever. G.K. Beale, in his Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, writes this, Both the temple and the tabernacle embody a theology of creation and God's presence within it. Consequently, there are parallels between the Genesis creation account and the accounts of the building of the tabernacle and the temple. As a symbol of pristine creation, the temple evokes the Garden of Eden or paradise. In other words, the Garden of Eden served as a temple, a dwelling place for God on earth where man would meet with his creator. 
was in the garden that Adam and Eve walked with God, met with him. And the psalmist calls the temple where God's throne is God's resting place. So when God had finished his work of creation and establishing this garden temple, he rested. That is, he was enthroned. He took his seat as king over all that he had made. Meredith Klein comments in his book, Kingdom Prologue, this rest of God may be more specifically understood as a royal kind of resting. The royal nature of the rest follows from the royal nature of the work. God created the heaven and the earth to be his cosmic palace, and accordingly, his resting is an occupying of his palace, a royal session. The dawning of the Sabbath witnesses a new enthronement of Elohim. So Reformed Baptist pastor Richard Barcelos, in his book, Getting the Garden Right, says this, The main event of the week of creation occurred on the seventh day. The narrative is heading to a climax. Though man in the image of God is the climax of the things created in the first six days, the actions of God in the creation week reach their zenith on the day God rested. The Sabbath is about rest from our labors, but it's about much more than that. It is about the enthronement of God as king in his temple. This is why worship is tied to the Sabbath, because on that day we celebrate God as our sovereign king who rules over everything that he has made. And remembering his royal rest, we rest from our labors and worship him as king. But it's even more than that, because had Adam finished the work, he would have entered his rest as the federal head of humanity, as a vassal king under the authority of the king of kings. Adam would have been enthroned when the work was completed as the head of humanity. So the weekly Sabbath from creation served as a memorial of God's work of creation and as a promise of the final blessing of rest that would be obtained upon completion of the covenant of works that God had given to Adam. Too often, I think, we look back at the Garden of Eden as this idyllic situation, and it was, but we look back at it as if that we want to get back to that, or we long for the day we get back to it. But the Garden of Eden was never intended to stay the way we see it in chapter 2. The garden had an eschatology. It had an end at which it was aimed. As the temple of God, the creator, it was supposed to be expanded to fill the whole earth and populated with worshipers. And upon completion of that work, there would be a royal rest for Adam and his offspring. So we can see that the Sabbath is properly observed by both worship and by rest. We should rest from our labors because that is the pattern that God has set for us in the creation week. We should rest from our labors because we are not almighty. We need rest. That's why God gave us the pattern of one day of rest in seven. But our resting should be worshipful resting that acknowledges God as our sovereign, as a king enthroned in his temple. 
And the Sabbath should be observed with rest, with worship, and with hope for our future rest. A rest that will, as Richard Barcelo says, be better than the beginning. So let's move on just a bit, and then we're going to come back to this again. But chapter 2, see, it doesn't end with the covenant being given to Adam and, and this promise of a future rest. It continues. And for the first time in the creation narrative, we're told that something is not good. In verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So it's not good that Adam is alone as a singular human. He needs help to fulfill his covenantal duties. And so, in verse 19, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. None of the other creatures were suitable helpers for Adam. Now, as we noted last time, Adam names all of the creatures, declaring his dominion over them as God's vassal king. But they are under his dominion, and none of them is comparable to him. And so verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so God makes woman, and we see this covenant of marriage entered into. The man and the woman together can do what the man alone could not. They can multiply and fill the garden temple with worshipers. This is the work that they were giving in the beginning to subdue the earth, expand the borders of the garden to fill the earth, and fill it with their offspring who would worship God. And they were to do this together as husband and wife. God created them male and female and gave them to each other in this covenant of marriage that they might fulfill the covenant of works. The movement in our culture to join two individuals of the same sex who are biologically incapable of having offspring. And to call that marriage is not only it's a direct rebellion against the Creator's design, against His intention for man and woman. And I know that not all husbands and wives are able to have children for one reason or another. But that's a result of the fall, which we'll get to in chapter 3. It's not the design. It's not good. But even if they're incapable of having children, the text explicitly says that the woman was made to be a helper comparable to Adam. The Hebrew word here means something like a mirror image of. That is, the word has three definitions. If you look it up in a a Greek concordance or dictionary, it means something is worthy of comparison, that it is before or in front of you, and that it is the opposite 
of the thing it is being compared to. All three of those are captured in the idea of a mirror image. A mirror image is before you or in front of you. It is comparable to you, and yet it is the opposite of you. You stand in front of a mirror, you raise your right hand, the image in the mirror looks like it's raising its left hand. It's a mirror image. I want to suggest to you that those who are in favor of so-called same-sex marriage are not only in rebellion against the Creator's design for man and woman in marriage, but they also lack imagination. Same-sex couples are like each other in a very like-each-other kind of way. There's no mirror image there. A man and a woman are like each other, but they are distinct and unlike each other in some very important ways. The task given to Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply so that they might fill the earth with worshipers descended from them in the image and likeness of God. Spiritual beings with knowledge of their creator in their minds, love for him in their hearts and obedience to him in their hands. So the covenant of marriage was given to serve the covenant of works, which was given to serve the creator by transforming the whole earth into a temple and populating it with worshipers made in his image. So how does all of this point us towards Christ? Well, next week we'll look at chapter 3. We already know the basic outline of the story, right? Adam and Eve fail in their duty. They break the covenant by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Christ however, came to fulfill the law. Not just the law of Moses, the Mosaic Covenant. That was a national covenant. It republished the moral law and the Ten Commandments, but then added judicial and ceremonial laws. It was given for life in the land. The covenant of works, which Adam failed to keep, offered something far greater. It offered everlasting royal rest. Christ came as the second Adam, we're told in the New Testament. He came to keep the covenant of works perfectly, to keep the law of God written on the hearts of all men. And he did so as the federal head of a new humanity, standing in the place of all those who ever have or ever will trust in him by faith. And upon the completion of his work, he entered his rest. Isn't it interesting that verse 1 tells us God's work was completed on day 6, finished, which of course was a Friday. On a Friday, Christ cried out from the cross, it is finished. What was it that Christ had finished on that Friday? It was the work of atonement, of redemption, a new creation. It was the work of accomplishing our salvation. And in so doing, he earned for himself and his people, he earned a people for himself to be his own, to be his body, his bride, his church. And what does the Bible tell us about the church? It says in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, But fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, so the church is a building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple 
in the Lord, in whom also you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Just as God had finished the work of creation on day six, which included the planting of a garden that was to serve as a temple, so too Christ finished the work of a new creation on the sixth day, which involved the redemption of his body, the church, to be a new and living temple for the Lord. And upon his resurrection on the eighth day, he ascended into heaven and entered his royal rest and now sits enthroned with the Father. Hebrews 4 verse 10, for he, and the references to Christ in context, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. And so having accomplished this, he has secured the promised assurance that we also will sit on the throne with him and reign with him. The church is often compared to a bride prepared for her husband, just as Eve was prepared for Adam. The church is prepared for Christ. Joined to him by faith, we are one with him as his spirit dwells in us, giving us that vital union with him that is so important to our identity and our sanctification as his people. And so that which Adam failed to accomplish, Christ completed perfectly. And that which was promised to Adam in the covenant of works will be brought to consummation in Christ at his second return. Notice how the garden is spoken of here in Genesis 2. Beginning in verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and onyx stone are there. And the text continues. The garden contains all sorts of trees for food, including the two sacramental trees of the covenant, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. The garden had a river flowing out of it that watered the garden. The garden is described in terms of gold, precious gemstones. These are all things that were used to adorn the temple in Jerusalem. But they are also used in the description of the new heavens and the new earth at the end of the book of Revelation. Listen to these descriptions of the new heavens from Revelation 21 and 22. Chapter 21, verses 10 and 11. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And then in verse 18 and 19, the construction of its wall was of jasper and the city was of pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. And then in verse 22, but I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. 
The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Gold, precious stones, a river which flows from the throne of God, the tree of life with a multitude of fruits, and Christ's church royally resting and reigning with him forever and ever. This is the end for which the garden was designed. The end is indeed better than the beginning. As Pastor Barcelos says in his book, Getting the Garden Right, Christ's work as a temple builder who entered his rest at the resurrection argues for the Sabbath as a creation and a new creation ordinance. So the Sabbath here in Genesis 2 is doing several things. It is set aside as a day of rest and as a day of worship. But those things are true and good, and the Sabbath should be a delight for both of those reasons. But the Sabbath is more than that. It is a reminder of God's completed work of creation and of Christ's completed work of new creation, of redemption. And even more than that is a promise of future glory when the kingdom will be realized in full and we will enter that promised rest. Rest from the labor of this world under the curse. Rest from the process of sanctification, which is temple building. Rest as we reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. The Sabbath isn't just a day when we don't have to go to our jobs. It's more than a day dedicated to worshiping God. It is a day meant to give us hope for the future. A day meant to refresh us and encourage us. A day meant to be a delight to the people of God on this earth as they anticipate an everlasting rest in the kingdom of light. When Christ is finally enthroned and every knee bows before him as king. So I encourage you to let this Genesis account give you permission to rest on Sunday and let it stir up your heart to worship the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, whose throne is in heaven and the earth is his footstool. And let it give hope to your weary soul that the end will be better than the beginning. Let's pray.